Well, it's good to be here. Last week, we didn't have church um, as in, in the main sanctuary at church in the hall because we were at church camp, but I heard that Eddie did such a good job. He preached on Ecclesiastes and meaninglessness, and it was really, really good. At church camp, we had a fantastic time as well. Robbie preached for us there on Peter, and it was good all, all around, no matter where you were, whether you were here, whether you were at camp. I would highly encourage you to come to camp next year. It's such a good time to just relax and um, spend time with people. We go for a walk every morning. There's some sports. Um, it's a good time to sit around the fire and just chat, and it was so good to just um, spend a bit of time with our, with our church family. Um, we also want to welcome everybody that's watching online. Thank you for joining us once again. We have so many people watching online and enjoying our church from wherever you are, and we're glad that you have joined us as well. Uh, once again, we are in our series, The Long Story Short, um, and a few people have said to me that it's not the long story short because I preach so long. But Daryl said to me today, Pastor, please preach a bit longer. So if you have any concerns, speak to Daryl. He said nothing shorter than 57 minutes. So um, thank you, Daryl. I appreciate that. Um, so we, we end our story, the long story short, and um, we are actually um, looking at the creation, the first kind of act, these seven acts, creation, crisis, covenant, Christ, a church coming, and then the, the conclusion. We're still just in, in the first section there, in the creation um, section. And um, I just want to set this thing up and see if it works. Um, maybe it doesn't. Let's see if it goes now. I'm trying to get technology to work. There we go. So we're still in creation. We're still in creation. And last time we looked at Genesis chapter 1 and 2, specifically looking at the theistic perspective, looking at what it says about God. Today we're going to look at the anthropological, what does it say about humanity? So I'm just going to give a bit of a, a background if you weren't here. So last time, so not last week, the week before that, we spoke about what does this say about God? Genesis 1 and 2, the first two chapters, the first two pages in the Bible, what does that say about God? What, what can we learn from that? So we looked at, at three things, the mission, the method, and the motive, and we contrasted God and Satan against each other to kind of highlight a little bit about who God is and what he does. So the first one is the mission. In the mission, we saw that God uh, is there to create a good context for his image bearers. That's you and me on this earth and to develop and to grow into goodness by ruling and resting in creation. That's God's mission. God's mission comes from good towards good. He just wants goodness in this planet, on this earth, in his creation, and he wants you to be a part of that. In contrast, Satan's mission is to exalt himself above for his own worship. God is the one that truly, truly should be worshipped, um, but yet he's the one that serves, the one that gives the, the Satan, a created being, wanted to be worshipped, and that resulted in a, in a kind of a sort of decreation of the world back from, from a place of order to a place of darkness and disorder. Then we saw the method how God did this, the way that God created goodness and this whole world moving from chaos to cosmos was specifically to create goodness, order, and rest through his creative word that eventually meant to his creative actions. Satan, in, in the opposite of that, we see that he goes and creates chaos, not cosmos, not order, but disorder and unrest through his slanderous and deceptive words and actions. And so in a sense, he's almost this um, counterfeit creator or decreator. And then the, the last one and motive, we see that God is motivated primarily by love. Everything that he does is because of love and Satan is rooted in pride. And so we can essentially then start making um, these uh, hang these little hooks that we can start hang our worldview on 
And the one is that God is both transcendent and distinct. Genesis 1 gives us the idea that God is powerful, He's beyond us, but somehow in Genesis 2 we see that He's also imminent and relational. So the God that we pray to, the God that we connect with, is a God that is powerful but yet personable. He comes close to us. Then what we can also know is that God created and sustains both the material and the immaterial world. So the world that we operate in, the material things, the world that we, that we live and breathe in, is not just the material world, it's not just atoms and molecules, but there's also a spiritual dimension to this world that is quite important to us. There's this intersect between the two. And then also that God creates everything from good for good. So when we think about God and the creation story, we need to realize that it comes from good. There's no evil, there's no bad, there's no, nothing of, of a taint. It's not marred by anything. God created everything that is good. I want to mention also that we have a podcast about the sermon series where we go a little bit in depth. So we've done the first one about worldview, and then um, last night we just did um, the one on Genesis 1 and 2 and the God perspective. So if you want to listen to that, we had a really, really good um, discussion. Myself, Eddie Berenice, and Robbie, we kind of get more about how can we make this practical. If we take this teaching, how can we take it more practical? Practical, And so I would invite you to to join us there as well. So today we're going to be in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and specifically ask the question, what does this say about humanity? But before we start, let's just pray together. Gracious Father, we come to you and we say thank you for your love and your mercy and your grace. Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit, the Spirit that inspired Scripture, the Spirit that was there at the beginning of of creation, that saw um, and participated in the creation of humanity, Lord, we pray that that same Spirit, God's Spirit, will be amongst us now as we delve into these topics so that we can start to understand who we are, Lord. What is our purpose? What are you calling us for? Where do we belong in this world? Those big questions, Lord, that we really need answers to for ourselves, that we would walk out here knowing a bit more about that and that we would have these, this framework, Lord, to operate in, is my prayer in your name. Amen. So Genesis 1 and 2 um, it says a lot about God, it says a lot about the world, and it says a lot about us as human beings. George Barner writing about this idea of a, a worldview, because that's what the Bible is informing us in this beginning few chapters. It's, it's setting us up to understand the world through a biblical worldview. And so he says this, he says, without a biblical worldview, all great teaching goes in one ear and out the other. There are no intellectual pegs, there's no hooks to hang certain things on. In the mind of the individual to hang these truths on, so they just pass through, they don't stick, they don't make a difference. So you might ask yourself, why are we going through Genesis 1 and 2 again? Like this is a story that we know pretty well. Well, in a sense, Genesis 1 and 2 gives us those pegs, gives us those, the framework where a lot of the, the rest of the Bible makes sense. When we get to the story of Jesus and the church and the coming and even the consummation, a lot of the stuff where Jesus is and God is moving towards actually is found already in Genesis 1 and 2. He sets up humanity for what we are called for. On, a, on the most existential level, many of the desires and yearnings that we have in ourselves comes from God that created us for a specific purpose. And to have true human flourishing, to live up to the ideal that God created us to be, we have to go back to Genesis and say, what does that mean to be a fully-fledged human being? What, what are we created for? And so Genesis 1 and 2, understanding of what humanity is, is so important for us for our biblical worldview. And so we start off with these four points that I want to speak about today. 
is that humanity is dependent. Humanity is created in God's image. Humanity is very close to the proximity of God. We are neither animals nor angels, but there's something very special about us as human beings. And then humanity is a living being. These are things that when you just read through Genesis 1 and 2, it's very obvious within the text, but it has significant implications for the way that we live our lives today. The way that you conduct yourself, the way that you operate within this world is deeply connected to these four points. So let's look at each one very quickly independently. So the first one there is that humanity is dependent. Today, the big mantra today is that you are free, you're independent, do your own thing, you're a strong, independent person. Right? But the Bible says, no, 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 you're a very dependent individual. You're not an, a, a, a being that is independent of anything and everything. You're not an island. The Bible says that, no, 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 you're pretty dependent not only on God, but also on the earth and also on other human beings. Right? We have been created for dependence. We can see that already in the, in the structure of the creation story, God is the one that orders everything. There's first a lot of disorder. He orders everything. And after he's ordered everything, then he inhabits everything. We are only created at the, as the last thing on, on day six. And then on day seven, God rests with humans and say, I've already created all of these things and now you can move within this. So already a lot of the stuff that we are given to play with, given to live in, is something that God has given to us. We don't actuate that. We don't create that. We are dependent on God giving those things to us, right? We read it in Genesis chapter 1, verse 29. It says, And God said, Behold, I, God, have given them every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree of, with the seed in its fruits, for you shall have them for food. So the thing that sustains us, that, that feeds us, is something that God has already given, right? He is the, not only the creator, but the sustainer of us. Then it says in verse 31, it says, And God, um, and God saw that everything that he had made, we have not made anything. The creation story says that we are, 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 are not the individuals that create stuff yet. But from the beginning, God is the one that is ultimately the creator. He is the uncaused cause of everything. And then it says that everything that God created was good. There was evening and the morning, the sixth day. Now, what's, what's profound about the sixth day is that's the day that we were created. So the day that we were created, God didn't create us and then suddenly he gives us work. No, no, somehow God finishes all of the work in the seven days and then humanity starts as a, as, as a co-creator with God in a sense. And we'll, we'll get to that in a, in a second. Then it says, so God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. I've already read that. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because God rested from all his work which he had done in creation. Here we see something very interesting. In the first six days, God creates everything that is material, but then somehow God creates something that is immaterial, spiritual, the Sabbath day. We already in, implicitly hints to this idea that we are not just material beings. There's a spiritual dimension that we are a part of, and we are independent on that spiritual dimension as well. We cannot just go around in this world independent of our spiritual realities and think that we can live the full life as human beings without the spiritual dimension. We live in a world that is uh, very strongly opposed to this notion. Modernism at its roots has this idea of, 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 of um, the evolutionary theory and atheism and all of these main ideologies that came out of modernism says that you are independent and that everything is just material. But deeply within all of us, we know that that isn't true. There's a void that is created in all of us that deeply needs God and spiritual things to feed us because that's how we've been created. 
Now we see the, the, the kind of interplay there in Genesis chapter 2 where God is setting up humanity to do something. But he says there, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground. There's a distinction between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. In Genesis 1, God creates everything. But in Genesis 2, it's almost a, a story from below, not from above. And then we see that the, 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 the Eden, called the paradise, the pleasure place, that's what Eden means, pleasure, the, the place that God had put Adam and Eve was not perfect yet. It wasn't the beautiful garden that was already fully developed. God is creating a place for them that they can develop even further. And God says, but before you can develop it, there's two things that was missing. There wasn't, there wasn't a, a water and there wasn't a human being to work it. And so God is the one that eventually brings the water and he is the one that creates the human being. So even to reach full potential, God gives the ingredients that we need. From the get-go, the author, or Moses, is trying to tell us that we are deeply dependent human beings. And the Lord God planted the garden in Eden in the east, and there he put man whom he had formed. And then later on we see that he places the water in there as well. So if we go down um, even to this Genesis chapter 2, verse 9, where it says, And out of the ground of the Lord God sprang up every tree that is pleasant for the sight, for good for food. And the tree of life was in the midst of the garden, the tree of knowledge of good and evil was there as well. Now, if you think about this, what these trees represent, God is saying that I'm giving you all the food that you need, all the beautiful things that you need to, need to, to enjoy. And then he gives them a tree of knowledge of good and evil, a moral structure. And then he says to them, that somehow there's this tree of life that you can eat of and have immortality. The tree of good and evil and the tree of life represent God. It's both the center and circumference of who God is. Somehow God is saying that you're not the bee's knees. You are very highly regarded by God, but you're not an independent being that can do whatever you want. You're a very dependent being, dependent on God, dependent on the earth, dependent on each other. If we look at this famous pyramid, Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs, you'll see that in every aspect God had provided for humanity. If you put this and, and go through Genesis 1 and 2, you'll see the, the most basic level, physiological, breathing, food, water, sleep, all of those things. Who's the one that provides that to a human being? Does he create them and say, now go look for these things by yourself? No, no, no. He gives it to us. This world is so beautifully ordered that it is perfectly attuned, perfectly designed for us to exist on this planet. There is no planet, and we have surveyed, there are actively tons and tons of research going out to find life on other planets. And one of the things that they look for is what they call the Goldilocks zone. They're looking for a planet that is just close enough, but just far enough from their own sun or star that can have a place where there can be water and life. And they have looked for this for so long, and they can't find a place like Earth that is perfectly designed to have something that just is as basic on the basic level as our physiological needs of water and, and air. Just the gases, just to sit here and breathe the right amount of, 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 of balance with the gases in, in, in our uh, um, atmosphere to make us, to be able just to exist is very, very specific. We are not too far, not too close to the sun. The water in, in, in our planet is just the right kind of uh, connection, right? So somehow, it's called the anthrop... Uh, anthrop, anthrop, anthrop I always forget this name. Anthrop... Uh, never mind. <laughs> I always, uh, anthropological principle, right? So it has to do with the principle that we looked at is specifically for human beings to have this world perfect for us, right? 
And the reason for that is somehow scientists are saying that there's this beautiful quote that I read this week. It says that a little science might, might make you seem that there is no God, but a, a lot of science will make you seem that there can't be a place that doesn't have God. Because the more that you look around, the deeper you dive into science, the more that you realize there must be a designer behind this that is setting up a world that is perfect for us to live in this world. Physiological, it's right there. Safety. God is the one that gives them a beautiful garden. Everything is perfect that he puts there for them. They are safe there. They, they, they can get whatever they want. They, there's purpose in the, and we're going to speak a, more, a bit more about that, but God gives them a certain specific purpose, right? There's love and belonging. God is the one that creates them for, for relationships. He creates them in, the, in his image. And then God is the one that says in Genesis chapter 2 that it is not good for man to be alone and creates a helper, a complementarian helper for him. If we move up into esteem, God is the one that creates them and gives them purpose and calls them to certain things. It is God that calls them to a place that live out their full potential. In every single level of this, this hierarchy, God provides everything for human beings. And even today, for us to, to find our self-actualization, it cannot be removed from the context that God is creator and that we are dependent human beings. If you try and remove that context, that framework that we are cre creatures created by a creator, that there is a moral framework that we operate in, if there is a place that we should move and operate without this, this idea, we move to a point of nihilism, a point of meaninglessness. Friedrich Nietzsche, one of the biggest atheists, what they call the modernist philosophers or the modernist po uh, uh, um, prophets, he wrote in a book, Thus Spoke Zarathustra, about the madman that walks around and he walks around with a, with, a, with a light and then he says to humanity, God is dead and we have killed him. Now he's not saying that God is, uh, that we have actually gone and killed God, but he says that we have killed the notion of God. As, as modern people, we have detached ourselves. That is the big modernist idea is that we have detached ourselves from God. We have untethered ourselves from God. We don't need God now. We can do this stuff ourselves. We can figure out the world by ourselves. We can figure out the laws of nature and how to manipulate and use these things. We don't need to have the God of the gaps, the stuff that we don't understand so God fits in there. No, no, no. We have killed God. We don't need him anymore. But then he says something very interesting. He says that we will struggle and we will eventually move to this point of nihilism, a point of meaninglessness. Why? Because there's two main things that we want and we need as human beings. It's freedom and equality. Freedom and equality. Freedom to do what we want to do. Freedom to move and operate as autonomous, sentient beings. Right? The freedom to do those things, the liberty to do those things, and the equality to know that I am a human being and my positions and, and my opinions and all of those things matter. Now today, those are the things that are very important, liberty and equality, to do what you want to do and how you want to do it, and you can do it because you're an equal, you're a human being, you have, you have rights to yourself. But if you take those two things, liberty and equality, and they're deeply um, Christian values, God gives us freedom of choice to even reject Him as our Creator, and he gives us equality to say that all of human beings are created in the image of God. Inherent in the Sabbath day commandment, Genesis, uh, in Exodus chapter 21, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 5, is this idea that on the Sabbath day, which remembers not only creation, but remembers redemption and remembers the, 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 the second coming, the new heavens and the new earth, inherently in the Sabbath commandment, which is a creation idea, is this idea that nobody should work. Why not? Because we are all equal. But if you remove liberty and equality from the framework that God is God and we are dependent of each other, 
you will get to a place of pluralism where your truth is your truth because you have the liberty to choose whatever you want to choose as your truth and you're all equal so your truth must be true. And we get to a point where we will move to a point of meaninglessness. And that's exactly what Nietzsche said. That's why when Nietzsche died, he did not die a happy man. He died a very frail and very scared human being. That is why our world today is moving to a point of deep meaninglessness. Why? Because we are building a society, a democracy, a world on liberty and equality that is devoid of the biblical framework that God is there, that he is a creator. So for us, freedom and liberty is important, but it works within a framework to say you are equal and I am equal because we are created in the image of God. But that means I cannot treat you and you cannot treat me in any other way except through love and care that is given through us through the Bible. That I have liberty to choose, but my, my, my decisions have consequences. Somehow this idea of dependence is very important to us to function as a society, as, as human beings on this planet, that cannot be devoided from this idea that God is creator, cannot be removed from this point that we have responsibility for this earth because we are dependent on this earth to keep us alive. And if we abuse this earth, if we do whatever we want to do because we are free to do it, we will eventually start destroying ourselves. Very simple point that we are dependent, something that we might militate against, but somehow there's something very profound about that, that we are deeply dependent on God, on each other, and on the world. And the, the profound thing about this is that when God created us, He did not create us as gods, fully independent, we can do whatever, but He didn't create us as drones either where we should just obey and just... No, he created us human beings, people that can think, they're sentient beings, people that have a moral compass, a, a, a freedom of choice there. And so that means that each decision that we make, each decision that you make, your choices have consequences. Your choices have weight to them. Is that not a profound thing, a great responsibility, but also a great privilege? The second point is that we are created in God's image. We are created in the image of the maker. Genesis chapter 1 verse 26 says, Then God said, let us make our image. Now, this is a text that specifically is used to say, I oh, see, there's a trinity. There's a triune God, a Godhead. Well, this verse doesn't necessarily explicitly speak about a trinity. It implicitly implies it, right? But it says that let, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now, a lot of ink has been spilled to explain what does it mean to be created in God's image and God's likeness. Right, but the text actually gives it to us. It says, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. And then it says, let them have dominion. Those ideas of image and dominion are very closely linked. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. John Dibdahl, a Seventh-day Adventist com commentator, writes this. He says, the image appears to be necessary for the function. So if you've wondered, like, why, what does it mean to be created in God's image? Well, think about the function that God wants you to do. That's why you're created in His image, right? He has a work for you to do. He, he creates those in His image to do something. The image appears to be necessary for the function. Therefore, the image points to the physical, intellectual, social, and spiritual endowments that would be needed for humanity to fulfill God's purpose for them. So God gives you the gifts in order for you to do something. He continues. It says, humans are made in the image of God and reflect 
divine characteristics such as morality or the ability to choose, but they are not inherently divine. Then it says in verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. John Debel continues and he says, sexuality is by divine plan and will be the vehicle to realize God's blessing in verse 28. Furthermore, neither male nor female are exclusively made in the image of God, but together they form humanity, complete humanity. So in verse 28, it says, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish over the sea and the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then when God said uh, in verse, 20, uh, verse 18 of chapter 2, he says, Then God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Interesting, that word helper is the word azer, which in every time, mostly in the Bible, when the word azer is used, it is where God is our helper. So this is not a hierarchical like females are below males, but there is an equality between the genders. God comes and says that I have called both of them to be in my image, and they need to work together to have dominion. There's a purpose there. So when we are created in God's image, it means that we are free, relational, sentient, and moral beings. We can think for ourselves, we can operate within a moral framework, which also means that when we operate without that moral framework, we are going against our own nature. We are damaging ourselves. Now let that sink in. Every time that you sin, you are not just sinning against God or a, or a moral law, but you're sinning against yourself. Let, let that sink in. Every time that you sin, you are not just sinning against God or His moral law. It's not like riding, you know, a, a hundred and thirty in a, in a hundred zone. And you're like, oh, well, sorry, you know, that's... No, no, no. When you are sinning, you are sinning against your own body. You are damaging yourself through your sin. Sin has, a, a, has, has, a, has a, an element to it where it is corrosive. It's twisting us. It's breaking us apart. It's leading us further away from the fully human being that we want to be. Can you already see how the, the world's worldview, the, the worldview perspective that we have today is about live the life that you want to live, be free to do whatever you want, do, be, be who you want to be, somehow starts to unravel itself. Because when you just live up whatever the world says that you feel you want to do this and so to do this, without that moral framework, eventually you're not going to lead up to a place of full human flourishing because you're going to start to de-evolve. You're going to start uh, uh, corroding away to some degree. You might have the shell of a human being, but the, the way that God wanted you to be truly will not be that. So we are free, relational, sentient, and moral beings. We are also royals with a purpose. We are God's representatives, right? We are created in the Imagio Dei, the image of God, plus the dominion. And those together means that we are royal representatives. We are kings and queens. And not in a nice little way, you know, like you would say to your wife, oh, you're the queen of my life, right? No, no, no. God saw, he created you in his image. The ancient Near East had this paradigm that they would create an image, a king would create a carved image of himself, and then he would put that carved image in the places where he rules, at the perimeter of where he rules. And so every time that you came into this place and you could see these images, you would say, oh, now we're in this, this king's domain. 
The reason why God says in the Ten Commandments that we should not bow down to graven images is because we are already an image, in the image of God. So God called us, created us as image bearers to rule in this earth as his proxies. That wasn't just for Adam and Eve. That's for you today. God is calling you to rule on this earth as his proxy. Isn't that a great responsibility for you to rule in God's presence? In this world as an ambassador of the kingdom? It says that the rest of creation is dependent on human beings. There's a big element of creation care within the call to be God's people. And not creation care just in terms of the land and the animals, but also for our communities, for the people that might be oppressed. There is this idea that we should stand up and rule well. The third element is that we are a living being or a soul. That's one of the most mistranslated words today is this idea of a soul. The word of a soul. In, in, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, it says, Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Some of the old translations, like the King James, would say a living soul, and there has been many theological fights about the idea of a soul. But if you go back to the original, the first time that it mentioned it, it doesn't say soul, it says crea- uh, creature. So let me explain this. Adam is taken from Adama. When it says there, and the Lord God formed man, the word man there, there's two Hebrew words, ish and isha, that's man and woman. But when it says, but the Lord God formed man, that word man is the word Adam, which means humanity. The Lord God formed Adam, and the word dust from the ground in the Hebrew, Hebrew is Adama. So you can already see in the idea of this creation story, Adam or Moses is writing and saying that we as human beings have a very, very close relationship to this earth. We are created in the image of God. Can you see the tension there? We are created in the image of God, something very powerful, very, very profound, but at the same time, we have a very close connection to the earth. Adam is taken from Adama, from the dust, right? Now, Bob Utley writes this. He says, this reflects the lowliness and the frailty of humanity. There is a dialectical tension between mankind's exalted place, man is in the image of God and the likeness of God, and the lowly, frail condition. This denotes mankind as clay and God as the potter. Once again, that dependence. So then we move from this point where Adam is taken from Adamah, and then God gives the breath of life. God provides it. Those two elements come together. The noun breath, the the word for for, um, breath, shows that God took special care with the creation of mankind. However, humans still physically function as, all do, as, as do all the animals on the, on the earth, right? They breathe, they eat, they excrete, they reproduce. Somehow there's something very close to us, the way that all other animals operate, but something very distinct as well. Humans uniquely can relate to God, and yet we are in, inextricably bound to this planet. There is a dual aspect to our nature, spiritual and physical. Now, this is a very profound point. Once again, we should not negate the spiritual in our lives. Let me ask you this. Are you reliant on other people to eat for you? Like you're like, man, I wish my wife would eat more for me because I'm so hungry today. Do you rely on other people to feed us? Like how would you operate if you, all that you do is you're saying, I didn't eat today because my mom didn't feed me today. 
yeah, but you're a 19-year-old. Like, you should feed yourself by now, right? Oh, I'm so thirsty, but nobody has given me water today. Yet many times, this is how we operate in our spiritual lives. Oh, I'm so spiritually hungry, but the pastor didn't feed me today. Oh, I, you know, nobody prayed for me. How are you praying? How are you feeding your soul? Your spiritual uh, uh, hunger and thirst, your spiritual uh, 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 well-being is your responsibility. Just like your physical well-being is your responsibility. Now, I'm a terrible cook, right? If I had to choose to, to make food, we would eat peanut butter sandwiches every day, right? And I make a really good peanut butter sandwiches, by the way. I've had tons of training. So I rely on my wife. I'm dependent on my wife to cook good, healthy, hearty meals, right? But I work with her, right? So, so you can depend on other people and say, hey, I'm struggling to read this. I'm struggling. Like, can you pray for me? Can you help me do a Bible study? Can you teach me to do this? Yeah, we're supposed to be dependent. We're not totally independent, but that doesn't mean that we are so dependent on that person that we don't do anything. Both physically and spiritually and emotionally, all of those things is our responsibility as human beings from the get-go. And you can't say, oh, I don't care really that much about my spirituality or one day I will care about it. No, no, no. You're not going to be a fully healthy human being if you neglect your spiritual life just like you won't be a, a, a healthy individual if you neglect your, your physical life. And that's rooted in this idea of being created um, in, in the image of God. So we have Adam and Adam are coming together. God breathes in the breath of life. And together, those two elements make what we call nefesh, the, the living creature. Humans do not have a soul. That's one of the best things that you can take from this. Humans do not have a soul. They are a soul. We are a unity of the physical and the spiritual. So when we think about this idea that humanity is a living being, we are from the dust. We have close connection to the earth. But at the same time, we are living monist beings, meaning we are one individual, one thing. Our physical, emotional, spirituals are all connected. Now, once again, deeply, deeply practical implications. What you eat has an impact on your spiritual life. What you watch what you listen to has an impact on your emotional life, on your spiritual life, even on your physical life. The way that you handle your body is very important. And this, this idea might seem so insignificant, but it has massive complications later on in the story. One very easy one, the way that we understand death. The idea, the, the idea that you have a soul and when you die, your soul goes on and lives on, that is not a biblical idea. That is a Greek pagan idea that came from Philo, which probably he got from, from, the, from, from, the, um, from the Indians, right? From India, from the Caucasus region. And so this idea of the, the, the immortal soul, the idea that the, the Hindus have is this idea of the samasara, you, you reincarnate and your soul lives on, right? The, the Greek philosophers had this idea that, that you need to remove yourself from the material so that you can go on. Later on, Christians co-opted this idea. Augustine t- took this idea and said, this makes a lot of sense that we have the body and the soul and they come together. So when we die, we go to heaven one day. No, 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 that's not biblical. What is biblical is that you have a body and you, the breath of God is in you, and you are one being. Your soul does not depart or live without your body. Your body has an impact on your soul because you are a soul. You don't have a soul. So when you die, you go to sleep. That whole story is rooted in the biblical story. So this, this one element has massive implications later on in the idea of hell and heaven. The idea of that we can enjoy material things. That God created us to enjoy good food. 
that God created us to enjoy, good sex, that God in, uh, created us to enjoy material things, that we can enjoy beauty and delight, that we should not be like, like these uh, um, uh, monks that need to remove ourselves from everything that is physical because the physical is evil. No, 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 we can enjoy the physical, but to a degree. If you think about food, for instance, God gave them good food to enjoy and to eat, but the abundance of that just to gorge yourself on food is what? Gluttony, and that is sin. So something so profound as who we are as human beings, that we have a soul, has massive implications on the way that we live our, day, our lives every single day. How do you look after your body? How do you look after your mind? How do you look after your soul? Do you steward it well? And then the last one, humanity is created in close proximity to God. We are very close to God. We're neither angels nor animals. There's something in between. There's something unique about us as human beings. Created in the image of God, but yet still taken from the earth. There's fragility there, but there's also beautiful uh, purpose and power there. Humanity is created in close proximity to God. What's interesting about this is not very evident in the, in, in the English, if you just read it. But when you start digging a, bit, a little bit deeper, you'll realize that from the get-go in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, God sets up the idea, the notion that humanity is created as priests and kings for his kingdom. All of humanity, both Adam and Eve, were created as kings and priests. Right? And there's many of these very uh, um, analogies. And we'll, we'll delve a little bit more into the sanctuary after this series. But I just want to mention a few. Right, So there's parallels between Eden and later sanctuaries. The sanctuary that, that, um, that Moses had in the wilderness and then the one that Solomon built. Right? So both entered from the east. The cherubim regarded, um, guarded the entrance. After Genesis 3, after the fall, there were cherubim that, that guarded the, the, uh, the, the garden. Right? Now what's interesting, if you read through the Bible... There's about a hundred verses that speak about the cherubim. There's only two that isn't directly connected to the sanctuary. Do you want to take a guess where those two are? Genesis and Ezekiel chapter 28. Ezekiel chapter 28 speaks about Lucifer falling, where he says that you were in Eden. And then the other one is in, in Genesis. So biblically, there's a very strong connection to the cherubim being part of the sanctuary. The menorah symbolized the tree of life. So there's a menorah in the, in the, in the holy place, and that symbolized the tree of life. The word for, uh, for work and care, abad and shamah in the Hebrew, where it says that they must work the earth and they must care for the earth, is words that are very unique. It's not actually words that you would use for agricultural care. It was actually used in the Torah specifically for priestly care. So the priests are called to abad and shamah which God says that's what Adam and Eve should do. Gold and onyx were used extensively in the sanctuary, and even if you read it in, in Ezekiel chapter 28 and in, in, in Genesis 1 and 2. The fourth day, when God says that he creates the, the sun and the moon and the stars, he actually doesn't say sun, moon, and stars. He says the heavenly beings or the heavenly lights. That word ma'or is used in the Pentateuch specifically to refer to the lights used in the sanctuary. There's other words that can be used to speak about the sun, the moon, and the stars, but he, Moses uses those specific words to link these two. Think about it as a hyperlink. You know what is a hyperlink, right? A hyperlink is something that is embedded in a website. So when you click on something on a website and it directs you to another page, in the Bible you have those same ideas. Certain things, certain words, certain phrases are like hyperlinks. So if you think that one and you know the Bible story so well, you would automatically be related or thinking about something else. The Bible uses it all the time. For instance, when Paul speaks... 
Paul says the, the righteousness or the, the just shall live by faith. When he uses that, faith, that, that phrase, the just shall live by faith, he is not talking about just a small little thing. He is actually quoting a whole context out of a book. Or when, when, somebody, uh, when Jesus says that he is the son of man, he is not just thinking about a new thing. He is actually quoting from the book of Daniel. So when he says the son of man, he wants you to go back to the book of Daniel and know what he is talking about. Hyperlinks. What Moses is doing, the one that wrote Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, he knows of the intertextuality between these things. So he has these embedded hyperlinks, uses specific words so that when you read Genesis 1 and you read Genesis 2, all the alarm bells are going off. You have all these pages opening in your mind saying, oh, but that's sanctuary, that's sanctuary, that's sanctuary, that's sanctuary. So that when you read it, you would know Adam and Eve and you and me are kings and priests for the kingdom. Beautiful privilege, but beautiful and profound responsibility as well. We read there on the fourth day as well when he speaks about seasons. The word moed is very also closely um, connected to the idea of, of festivals. There's lots of festivals in the sanctuary service, right? Water flowed out of Eden in Ezekiel later on, many, 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 many years after this. Ezekiel has a vision of the new temple, and he says that water will flow from the temple. In, in Eden, there's four rivers, rivers that flow out and fill the earth. Constantly, there is this idea that we are priests within this kingdom. There's a close proximity as mediators. So let's wrap this up. What is the truth for today? What can we take away from these four elements? Number one is that we are created to be with God, with each other, and the world. This means investing and caring for these dominions within the moral framework. It means that you have responsibility for yourself to look after your body, after your own soul. That's good stewardship. And look after the community around you. Do you see somebody struggling? Do you see somebody that needs a bit of help? And you have to look after your, your not physical, not just only your physical body, but your spiritual life as well, your connection with God. And then after this earth, look at this earth. Care for this earth. As Seventh-day Adventists, as people of creation, creation care should be very important to us. We should be at the forefront at looking at how we look after this earth. Now, this has been severely politicized, hasn't it? We're almost too scared to get involved in the conversation because we don't want those political baggage. But you can still look after the earth without getting political about it. You can still care for the earth without being political about it. You can still be cognizant of where you buy your furniture from or where you buy your clothes from or how you litter or how you recycle or all of these various things. You can still be a mindful Christian and look after this earth without being political. There's great responsibility and great privilege to be human the way that God has set us up to be human. The second one is that freedom and equality is important but designed to operate in a moral framework. Don't fall into the trap that the world wants to set up that you can be free to do whatever you want without any consequences. That everybody is equal so everybody's voice matters equally. No, no, no. There is something as objective truth. There is certain things that is right and certain things that is wrong. C.S. Lewis called this the, 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 um, the, no, I forgot that as well. Can you believe it? I had a tough week this week. Um, it's a law 
Never mind, I'll get to the name now. But he explained this. um, It's not a moral law. It's a natural law. He called it the natural law. We wouldn't call it the natural law anymore, but he called it the natural law. He says that the natural law operates like this. Have you ever heard of a country or of a people group that praises cowardice? Imagine you're at a war, right? And you need to fight. But suddenly, all the warriors in front run away because they're scared. And they get back to their village and everybody's like, yeah, well done. You guys are great. You're doing great. Yeah, good. No, no, no. Somehow we know that cowardice, no matter which place you go to, cowardice is not esteemed high. Somehow within us, there's a moral law. There's a natural law. Just like gravity works in the natural world, there's a somehow this moral law, this, what he calls the natural law, that functions where we know certain things are just wrong. We look at what happened in World War II and we know that what happened there is just wrong. The way that Hitler operated and killed all of those millions of people, that's just wrong. No matter where you're from, no matter which country you're from, no matter what ethnicity you are, it doesn't matter, it is wrong. Why? Because somehow there is this moral law written into the, 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 um, the universe, written by God, the designer of all of these things. That means that we have equality, we, do, um, be, we are human beings uh, equal at the cross, but somehow your opinion and my opinion doesn't really matter as much as long as it is in line with God's word. And freedom cannot be detached from the framework of love for each other and love for God. It cannot be detached from the framework of God's moral framework. Because the, the, the inevitability of this, the thing where this leads to, is meaninglessness. This is, this is not something that we as Christians are making up. These are atheistic philosophers. Nietzsche is one of the best ones that say, this is where we're heading. You're heading to a point of despair. You untether yourself. You untether yourself from God in the moral framework. You say that God is dead and we don't need him. You'll end up in despair. That's a reality. and We see it today. As image bearers, as royal priests, we have a privilege and responsibility as material and spiritual ambassadors. You don't want to climb a ladder and then realize it's on the wrong side of the wall. Sometimes we are so obsessed with getting stuff that the world tells us that we need to get to impress people that we don't even like, to do all of these things so that we can be a symbol of success, that we climb this ladder and when we get to the top, we realize that we've lost ourselves. And we're totally, totally empty. We should work hard on this earth. There's a great privilege and great responsibility given to us as human beings. But we need to do it once again within a framework of the Bible, in the framework of what God sets for us in a biblical worldview. It means that we need to take responsibility for our own lives. We need to care for ourselves and care for our people and care for, for, for our, our work. Now, some of you might say, but, but I'm not a royal priest. I want to go to this verse, New Testament verse. Peter, picking up on this idea, says, but you, speaking to the church, you are a chosen people, meaning that God chose you. That's one of the ideas that Paul uses in the book of Ephesians. We just spent a significant amount of time last year going through the book of Ephesians. And one of the main things that he builds upon is this idea that you are chosen by God, not merely by creation, but also by adoption. God adopted you into his family. You are a chosen people. You are not here by random 
chance, but by God's design, by His choice. And therefore, you are a royal priesthood. Each one of you is a royal priest, meaning all of you have responsibilities to all of us together and to the world as a royal priest. A holy nation, God's special position that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into wonderful light. So what does that look like today? What, how do I live as a king and a priest in this world? How do I operate within that? What, how, how do we make it practical? Well, easy. If Jesus was king, if God was an actual person in this earth, like you could see him and touch him, and he was the king of a universe or, or the king of a, of a nation, how would he rule his nation? What would, who he do every, what would he do every day? Ask yourself that. Remember those bands that said, what would Jesus do? Became like a trite thing, right? Everyone's like, oh, what would Jesus do? Like, ugh, right? But that's essentially it. What would Jesus do? How would he serve? How would he care? When I became aware of this for the first time, I don't know what was it, what was it but we were talking about this like care of the universe and care of the, of the planet. And like the, the idea of littering just became like a frustrating thing for me. I, I normally, when I was younger, I didn't really care that much about littering. Like, it's a bad thing, but, you know, somebody will pick it up, right? But I became very acutely aware of just, like, small things, even, like, just, like, gum, like, throwing gum, right? Throw, and now it's almost like every time that I have something, like, I have a piece of gum or whatever, like, and I want to get rid of it, and I'm like, there's no bin around. Like, what should I do? Then I, I have this deep conviction. It's something so silly, but so deep conviction. Be like, no, I can't just chuck this because this is God's earth. Like, that's how, that's how specific it will become. That even chucking gum is a big thing for us. Right? God will speak to you, ask and pray and say, God, how do you want me to rule on this earth? How do you want me to be your priest and your king? The sphere of influence that I have, how am I a representative of you in this, in this place? The next truth for today, as living beings, we need to look after our spiritual, physical, and emotional health. You've probably heard about this new star thing, yeah? We as Adventists are pretty strong on living a good, healthy life. And the reason is, is because of this creation story. We don't eat healthy and do all of these things just because we want to. No, no, no. Through revelation, God had shown us and directed us to this idea that if you are a living being, if you are a living soul, you have to look after your soul. You have a steward. A stewardship responsibility. So if you've never heard about this, let me run it through you. So New Start, very easy acronym to remember. Firstly, care for your nutrition. Look after your nutrition. Look at what you eat and drink, right? Next one, exercise. Do exercise. It is so important for us to do exercise. Sometimes we eat healthy, but we do no exercise. You don't have to do in a massive amount, 30 minutes a day. Vigorous walking. Everybody or most people can walk 30 minutes a day. If you can do a bit more, do a bit more, Right? Exercise, water, drink at least two liters of water a day. Sunlight, get some vitamin D in, spend some time in the sun, right? Temperance, be balanced. Don't be so focused on your exercise or just so focused on the food or just so focused, on, like have a balanced life. And that's not necessarily just to do with physical stuff, but be balanced in everything. Try and live as balanced as you can, temperate life. Air, get some fresh air in. Rest, have about seven to eight hours of sleep, uh, 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 sleep a night. And then trust in God. This is such an easy way to live a healthy, balanced life. And I'll be honest, I don't always get it right. Sometimes I get it, sometimes I don't. 
But it's not about, ah, oh, I've tripped up today. This week I ate this, or this week I didn't do this, or this week I didn't do that. It's not about what you're not doing. It's about saying, hey, what can I do? Let me focus on doing what I can do. Let me focus and look after my body. We all have different contexts. We all have different uh, lives. We all have different responsibilities that are thrust upon us. So look in that context and say, oh, I can do 20 minutes of exercise a day. I maybe can't do 30 yet, but I can do 20. I can do 10. I can just do five. I can just stretch a little bit. Maybe I can't go, you know, do this with exercise, but I can, I can cut sugar maybe, or I can, I can cut this. I can drink more water. I can. There's many things that we can do to live better and healthier lives that will be better for us and that will have an impact on all the domains of our lives. So the biblical anthropological perspective, what does it say about humanity? It says that we are dependent. It says that we are created in God's image. We are created in close proximity to God. Humanity is a living and being a living soul. When I think about that, when I listen to that, this is the idea that I get, that there is a privilege and a responsibility to us as human beings that leads to true human potential and flourishing. Is there a human being here today that doesn't want to be the best human being, the best version of themselves, the fully flourishing human being that they can be? Isn't that what we're all chasing, to be good human beings, happy human beings, human beings that are living up to the greatest potential ever? Well, here's the, the secret to success. God has given you great privilege, but great responsibility as well. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, I pray, Lord, that we would be truly the individuals that you have created us to be. We know that sin had come and messed up this perfect ideal, and sometimes it's, it's a struggle. It's a real struggle to, to uh, not only remember these things, but to live it out. Um, and we know, Lord, that, that um, sin had come and messed the world about, and we're all carrying tons of baggage, and it's, it's not always easy. But what we do know, Lord, is that you came as the perfect human being, and you showed us how to live a good life. Lord, you, as our ultimate example, has come and given us a path, Lord, a way forward to be fully human again, to lead us back to this Edenic deal, Lord, and so we pray that your Holy Spirit will come today, that you would lead and guide us, Lord, to, to help us to understand, help us to embed these hooks in our brain, Lord, where we can hang these beautiful portraits of truth on, so that we can order our lives in a way, Lord, that is healthy and happy, a, a life that is fulfilling, a life that you want us to li live, a life full of goodness and truth and beauty. Lord, help us to climb the light, right ladder, Help us to pursue the right things. Give us wisdom, not only to know, but to do. Is my prayer in your holy name. Amen.